we'll begin in 2 Corinthians 9.15 again this morning, 2 Corinthians 9, but we will be looking at Genesis 22 in detail as well as Romans 5. So 2 Corinthians 9.15, Genesis 22, and Romans 5. 2 Corinthians 9.15, Genesis 22, and Romans 5. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul the Apostle says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. And we last week saw that that gift is Jesus. And that gift is indescribable because we can't fully wrap our minds around the love, the sacrifice, and the results of that gift. The problem is we try to understand it and words fail because thought fails. Words fall short because our minds can't fully grasp it. But Paul, he does understand enough of God's gift of Jesus to give thanks. So while it is beyond the capability of words to describe, we can learn enough to be thankful like Paul. Now the first aspect of why this gift is beyond words is because of the motive for the gift. It's impossible to fully understand the why God gave us Jesus. But we can know that it stems out of God's love for us, His goodwill toward man. That was the whole point of the sermon last week, that the angels come and they announce this good news, glad tidings of great joy that God's will towards man is good. He wants peace with us, that He longs to bring us close to Him and to bless us even though we don't deserve anything good from Him. We covered that last week. But there are two more aspects of this gift that are beyond words, which we'll cover this morning. We looked at the why last week, but today we're going to look at the how and the what, the method of the gift and the goal of the gift, God's sacrifice beyond words and God's salvation beyond words. So first off, let's look at the method, the how, God's indescribable sacrifice. So let's turn to Genesis 22 to get a better understanding of something that we can't fully describe. God's indescribable sacrifice is sacrifice beyond words. Genesis 22, verse 1. This is a a passage that some of you will be very familiar with. Some of you may not like it very much. Well, we come here in Genesis 22, verse 1, and it says, It came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and get you into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he clave the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. Can you imagine what it was like for Abraham during that three-day journey to Mount Moriah? Isaac didn't really find out what was going on until much later. Can you imagine what it was like for a dad to be on that trip for three days? We'll learn later that the Bible tells us that there was a sense where Isaac had already died in Abraham's heart, that there was, this was almost like a time of grieving. Now, I realize this is not a popular story in the Bible. I know a lot of people don't like it. I know believers who have left the faith over this passage in Scripture. I know people who refuse to believe because they say, I can never believe in a God that would tell a man to kill his own son as a sacrifice. But I think some of that is because they don't fully understand what's going on here. In fact, we need to clear up some wrong ideas that we often have about this event, ideas that are not helped by some children's ministry curriculum, which usually picture a very young child strapped down to an altar against his will, and then a father with a knife ready to plunge it into his child's heart. We must mention here that Isaac was not a boy when this happened. This did not happen against his will. He was a grown man, most likely in his mid-twenties, maybe even possibly in his mid-thirties. Secondly, we must also recognize that God never let Abraham raise the knife. Verse 10 says, and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. For some reason, we like to reverse that and say, Abraham stretched forth his knife to slay the son. That's not what it says. It's just the moment that he reached out and touched the knife. He never got it up here. The moment he grabbed the knife, it says that an angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The moment that Abraham steeled himself to grab the knife, an angel interrupted him and said, don't go through with it. Now, if it never gets to a dangerous point, if it's not this situation where this father is ready to plunge a knife into his six-year-old's heart, if that's not what's really going on here, and then God calls it all off at the end, why do it? Yes, there was a test element here, but there's clearly something more going on. While Isaac is a grown man at this point, while the knife never gets near him. We must not minimize the reality of the experience Abraham and Isaac had together. The Scriptures pointed out twice they did this together. This was not something Abraham did to Isaac. This is something they did together. And we must not minimize the reality of the experience. That is still, even if it's your 35-year-old son or your 25-year-old son or your 75-year-old son, that's still Abraham's son bound to the altar. doesn't matter how old he is. It's still your son. And it's also, the Bible calls it, his only son. Now, is that Abraham's only son? No. He had another son named Ishmael long before Isaac came along. But Isaac is the son of the covenant. He's the son of the promise. Isaac is the one that God had made promises about and promises to. 
And Isaac is aware of this. I mean, you got to think about what it was like growing up as Isaac. You've got your friend's birthday party, and you go on over, and all the other kids are there your age, and everybody's mom and dad is there, and here comes your mom and dad. Like, oh, Isaac, I see you brought your great-grandmother. That's my mom. How can that be your mom? She's ancient, man. Yes, I'm a miracle. He had to be told. He would have recognized, hey, mom, dad, you guys are really old. Why are my friend's parents all young? Well, Isaac, you were born to us in our old age. We can't have kids anymore, but here you are. You're a miracle. God made special promises to us. Let me tell you the story. Abraham knew that this wasn't just his son. It was the son of the promise. Isaac knew who he was. He knew the promises God had made concerning him. And that's your dad tying you to the altar. Now, again, I can only imagine, we think about this, the idea of like Isaac being there, like, what are you doing, dad? No, there had to be full agreement. It tells us twice they did this together. If my dad ever took me somewhere as a 25-year-old man, he started to wrap me up, I'd be like, boy, what are you doing? And by that time, I've got the physical ability to stop him if he wants to keep going. So the idea of saying, I'm willing to do this, and laying on that altar, letting your, that's your dad tying you down. Can you imagine the emotions? Can you imagine what was going through their mind, their thoughts? Now, the good news is we don't have to entirely imagine what was in Abraham's mind during this time, at least, because the Bible tells us what two of his thoughts were. I mean, technically three. The Bible tells us, I already mentioned that on that three-day trip, Isaac was already dead in his mind. But it tells us he had two other things going through his mind as well. Look at Hebrews 11 with me, verses 17 through 19. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19 It tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he that had offered the promises offered up his only begotten son. That language is chosen, by the way, importantly. He's not Abraham's only begotten son. But that phrase, only begotten son, is referred to who else? Jesus, of course. Just file that back there. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall your seed be called. Your descendants are going to come through Isaac. So what was Abraham thinking when God tells him to sacrifice his son? He's thinking, well, God promised me that Isaac is going to be where my descendants come from. And Isaac is not married at this point. He doesn't get married until he's 40 years old. He has no children. There are no descendants yet. So this is what Abraham's thinking. He accounts that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figurative sense. In other words, he'd already been dead to him. He'd already been that way. He'd already been thinking that. But because Abraham believed the promises of God, he goes, if God lets me go through with this, then God has to raise him back from the dead. That's the only way this works which is why he told the two servants. He says, I and the lad are going to go up there and worship, and then we're going to come back. So that's one thought that's in his mind. 
The second thought that's in his, or the other thought that's in his mind is in Genesis 22, verse 8. When Isaac wisely says, Dad, we've got wood, we've got fire, we've got a knife, we have no offering. Where's the animal? Where's the lamb? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. My God, he doesn't say, oh, God's going to provide for us a lamb. He doesn't say, God's going to provide a lamb for the sacrifice. He says, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. He will be the substitute. Now, here's what I want to throw at you. Abraham's on the way. He's spending three days where Isaac's already dead in his mind. That's got to be a difficult time. But he's also side by side with that thought. He goes, if God lets me go through with this, he's either going to raise him from the dead or he's going to provide a substitute. One of the two. He's either going to raise him from the dead if he lets me go through with it or he's going to stop it and provide a substitute. Those are the two thoughts in his mind. So here's what I want to propose to you this morning or ask you to ponder. Knowing those two ideas are in Abraham's mind, knowing also that he grieved for those three days, do you think it made the trip any easier? No, of course not. Do you think that made the thought of what he was about to do any less painful? No, of course not. Even though God never let Abraham get past the point of picking up the knife, it had been a rough three days. Now, we know that Genesis 22, because of all the language here, is a picture, a type of the cross, of the Father and the Son. So taking that into account, what we just discussed about Abraham and Isaac, consider what it was like for the Father to watch the Son leave heaven and become a human being. To watch someone else raise Jesus, someone who did not love him like he did. To watch a world not appreciate your son or acknowledge him. And then to watch that world crucify him while your son experienced the wrath of judgment that those people deserved. Can you imagine what it was like? Consider what it was like for the son to leave heaven and become a human being. To be born into a, a family that was poor. We know they were poor because it says the offering they brought for Jesus' circumcision was a turtle dove, right? Two turtle doves, which was the offering of the impoverished person in Jewish society. Then to lose your earthly father and then have your entire family reject you when you go public. To experience the wrath of judgment you didn't deserve while your heavenly father turns his head. We can try to imagine what was going through the father and the son's hearts because we know just as Abraham and Isaac did this together, the father and the son did this together. We can try to imagine, but I don't think we need to imagine what was going on in the heart of the father and the son in that moment because of the cross because two verses show their mood. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46, something very interesting happens. Jesus is on the cross, and it says in verse 45 of Matthew 27, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. From noon to 3 p.m., darkness over all the land. Now, 
you have to understand a couple things. In Florida, we do have quite a few storms that are broiling around at times, and so it may not be absolutely weird to have complete darkness hit us around noon, right? But at the same time, it's not normal to all of a sudden just see darkness around noon, right? But for back then, in the Middle East, to have a storm roll in like that or have clouds, dark clouds come in like that, it would have been completely abnormal. We think of oftentimes of rain as no big deal in Florida, but in a society that rain can be both wonderful and it can be also destructive because it comes in so swiftly, it's not exactly the same thing. I remember there was some time this year where the rain was coming down so heavily I could not see not even five feet in front of me, and it was not a fun way to drive. But to live like that when you generally don't experience that type of a thing, a storm rolling in like that can be terrifying. It's why after God flooded the earth, he gave the sign of the rainbow to, so people wouldn't be freaking out when all of a sudden dark clouds came rolling in. Because the last time dark clouds came rolling in, what happened? Everybody died. It was terrifying, horrible. So God says, no, don't worry. You see the rainbow, you know, I'll never do that again. And God's kept his promise. So these dark clouds and darkness comes over all the land, it says, for three hours. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, so about the end of this three-hour period of darkness that's completely abnormal, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We don't have to wonder what the mood was in the Father's heart or the Son's heart because we see it here. Jesus responds to the darkness by talking to his dad. The darkness is the Father's mood for three hours. And then this is Jesus' mood. Dad, where are you? Why have you not rescued me? Why are you leaving me here alone? I think sometimes we lessen the cost of the incarnation and the cross in our minds because we conclude that God knew he would get his son back in three days. Jesus knew he wouldn't stay dead. So, I mean, it's, it's just kind of acting out a play, right? You just got to deal with the pain for a little bit, son, but everything will be fine. Dad, don't worry, because three days later, everything will be back to normal. But see, when we do that, we conclude that God's sacrifice is describable, that we get it. It's not that big of a deal. I can fully understand it, so it's not that big of a deal, or at the least, it becomes less painful, more of a religious idea than something God the Father and God the Son actually experienced. Remember when I asked you earlier if you think it would have been easier for Abraham knowing he was going to get his son back in three days and we all agreed no? Well, then why would it be any different for the Father and the Son? People get so mad when they read Genesis 22. I've never served a God like that. Christopher Hitchens, the, the great atheist debater and stuff, basically in his book said, bleep that kind of a God. I don't want anything to do with that kind of a God. But have you ever considered that God put it there so that we don't minimize the incarnation and the cross? Ever considered that God put it there so that we would think of the horribleness of that and then go, oh, oh. That we wouldn't write it off as, well, 
God and Jesus knew it would happen. Or, well, they're God, so it's not hard for them. I think Genesis 22 is supposed to make us uncomfortable. It's not to be something we go, oh, yeah, you know, let's color the picture. Next week, we'll do David and Bathsheba. It's to make us uncomfortable so that we can begin to scratch the surface of his indescribable sacrifice. To begin to scratch the surface of this idea that just as it never got close to that with Abraham and Isaac, that God would never allow or accept our death to atone for our sin, not without doing something so we could be saved. That just like he did with Abraham, he would step in and he would provide a substitute that we might go free. Now that substitute cost the Father and the Son everything that you can imagine and more when you consider what it would have been like to have been Abraham and Isaac. But he did that for you and me, amen? That's enough to understand to be thankful, right? So we can be thankful for God's indescribable sacrifice, the method, the how. But what about the goal? What about the what? God's salvation beyond words, an indescribable salvation. The benefits of salvation are recorded in Scripture. They are there for us. We can study them. But the truth is, they're not always easy to reconcile with our own humanity. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? Awesome. When we studied the book of Ephesians last year, we delved into the meaning of Paul's inspired words there. We dug into what it means to be the riches that we have in Christ, to be chosen, to be adopted, to be redeemed, forgiven, predestinated, and sealed. And our goal in studying those things was to better grasp our riches in Christ so that we could walk more closely with Jesus. And I believe we accomplished that goal. So many of you told me how studying Ephesians helped your walk with the Lord. But here's the truth. Do any of us really fully grasp what it means to be seated in heavenly places with Jesus? Do any of us fully grasp what it means to be a joint heir with Christ? And did understanding those riches better make every doubt and every worry go away forever? You already know the answer to that question. Of course not. We still worry about things. Alexander McLaren said this. He said, when God gave us Christ, he gave us a storehouse in which are contained treasures of truth which can never be fully comprehended and which, even if comprehended, can never be exhausted. That's the part that I have a hard time grasping. I spend my whole life studying this stuff so I can share it with you. That's my whole life. I've spent time doing this. And when I think about all the blessings that are mine because of the gift of Jesus, it's awesome. It's why I sing. It's why I act differently now than I used to. But knowing and even teaching these truths to others doesn't make the thoughts go away sometimes. You ever have this question? Am I really, truly, and fully forgiven? Of course you do. I do too. Because it's hard to reconcile. 
Now, when we ask that question biblically, are we freely and truly forgiven of everything? The answer is what? Yes. Five of you are saved. Good. (laughs) Awesome. Yes, yes, the Bible tells us that. But then we know that, but other thoughts creep in, don't they? Or at least with me, they do. I think surely I can't be completely forgiven. I mean, I, I still remember what I did. God's God. He has a far better memory than I do. Surely he remembers too. And if I think about it sometimes, doesn't he think about it sometimes too? How could God not treat me according to those vile things I did? And yet, the Scriptures declare that he does treat me not according to my sins, but according to the righteousness of his Son. Right? It's awesome, right? It is. We know it. But it's hard to reconcile it with our own thoughts sometimes. It's hard to reconcile with everyday life. Beverly doesn't have a specific saying, but very frequently when I'm kind of losing it, when I'm upset or I'm worried or I'm nervous about something, whatever, and and she'll just kind of grab my attention with, with this idea like, do you think that God stopped loving you or do you think that God's not in control or do you think that God's promises aren't true? And of course, my response is always every time is, well, of course I, I believe that. But then that's when the click kind of goes off in your mind. You go, then why are you acting this way? Why are you worried? Why are you in the flesh right now? Why are you not trusting the Lord? Why are you not joy-filled? And she'll point these things out to me all the time and has to keep doing so. Why is that? Is it because God's promises aren't true? No. It's just hard to reconcile at times. I get it. I teach it. But clearly I don't get it completely. (laughs) Because if I fully grasped all that our salvation entails, all that our present and future holds because of the cross, would I ever worry about anything? No, there's no rational reason to worry about anything. That's why Jesus said, don't worry. Another great theologian said, instead, be happy. If I fully understood my salvation, I don't think I'd waste a minute ever again living for myself, nor would you. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is the study of a lifetime. And our goal is to get just a glimpse more each time we read or we talk about it together with the hope that we'll get a bit more of a firm grasp on it, even though we can't fully comprehend our position in Christ. Bible tells us he's going to be explaining his great salvation to us for all eternity, his kindness towards us. But our goal is to get a bit firmer grasp on it more every time we study it. So even though we can't fully comprehend it, like God's love beyond words and God's sacrifice beyond words, we can grasp it enough to be thankful. So we're going to study all of Ephesians again right now just kidding. Rather than go over everything we learned in Ephesians again, I would like to share just one concept this morning of our indescribable salvation that will give you a greater grasp. Maybe you'll just be a little bit more thankful. So let's look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Now, in context here, Paul's closing out his teaching on the topic of justification by faith alone. 
at the beginning of chapter 3, he introduces this idea that there is a righteousness of God without the law. In other words, that we can be right with God without having kept the law. And then he explains it's the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Christ Jesus. So by trusting Christ Jesus, we can have righteousness. We can have the righteousness of God. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? That's the whole point of last week's message. Peace on earth, goodwill toward man, right? This idea that we can have peace with God, that we who are at war with God because of our rebellion and our sin, He longs to be at peace with us. He longs to bring us close. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have that. And we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We can come to Him any time to receive the grace that we need. And we also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, we've got a hope for a future. We've got a hope. That verse in, in Jeremiah where it talks about... I know the thoughts that I have towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, thoughts of a future and a hope. I've heard, I've heard guys say, well, that promise was made to the people of Israel who are going to go into exile, and, and it's for them. That's not for us. We shouldn't stand on that promise. It's in Romans 5. It's right here. It doesn't have to be spoken to us there. If you find it somewhere else, the promise is the same. God save us from pride-filled, small-minded men. Merry Christmas. (laughs) We have hope. And then verses 9 through 11, he says, having that already much more, you know, because of our position in Christ, much more than being now justified by His blood, we're going to be saved from that, the, the wrath that's coming through Him. We're going to be saved by his life. So whatever wrath is coming, we don't have to worry about that. We've been saved now, we'll be saved later. Amen? And so he explains now, well, how did that all come about? And he explains, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, he's referring to, by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death, in other words, as a result, death passed upon all men, but it's not just Adam's fault, for all have sinned, right? So we die because we sin. Adam started the process, passed on that sin nature to us, but we also sin, so death passed upon us as well. And then Paul takes this little aside here. It spends about five verses on this little aside, and he explains something. He says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. He explains that Even though there was no law of Moses from Adam all the way to Moses, he says sin was still there because people still died. Now, the law was given there to show us that we break God's standard, that we are guilty. But we were still guilty even though there was no written standard prior to that point. So he says the same reason why everybody died, because of our sin. Explains, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them had not, who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure or the type of him that was to come. In other words, Adam is a picture of Jesus in a sense, but through his one act, it affected all of us. And yet, death passed upon all of us because we all sinned as well. Then in verse 15, he starts explaining how they're different though. Adam and Jesus are very different, for he says, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. In other words, the free gift is not like Adam's sin, his one act. 
For if through the offense of one, Adam, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. So he says, it's not like it in the, in the same way that you have Adam's one act caused all of us to be in, under judgment, or a sin nature, and then our sin causes us to be under judgment. It's not just Jesus' one act that saved us, it was a whole life. An entire life lived in perfection. So it's different. People point out, they say, well, see, Jesus, his gift only abounded unto many. Yes, the same many who Adam's sin affected. So yes, it is everyone. Jesus' sacrifice is available to everyone in the same way that Adam's sin affected everyone. Many is just to describe the reality of the impact. It's not limiting it to a certain group. Verse 16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. The gift is not like that which came through Adam, his sin, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But here's the difference. The free gift is of many offenses unto justification. See, because of one sin by Adam, death passed on to all of his descendants. And the common response when we hear that or when we talk about that is, I'm going to talk to Adam when I get to heaven. But here's the question we need to ask ourselves is, have you only sinned once? You see, all of us have made the same decision Adam made, but we've done it multiple times. Truth is, Adam may have been a very righteous man after his failure in the garden. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us any more failures he had. It doesn't tell us if he was a righteous man afterwards. But I do think it's arrogant to presume I'm better than Adam when the evidence of my decisions, my life, says otherwise. And if I'm a believer and I still disobey the Lord sometimes, that's even worse. So Paul points out, God's gift of Jesus isn't like Adam's sin. Jesus' life was full of righteous decisions, full of obedience. And Jesus did that to the very end of his life. And so that perfect righteousness, it doesn't just deal with Adam's sin, as some teach. It deals with all of my sin and all of your sin. Amen? Now, I can't fathom that kind of righteousness. Can you? I mean, to never, ever sin. Can you contemplate what it would be like to live a life where you never, ever sin? And yet it's true. And Paul says that kind of righteousness is now ours if we receive Christ. Verse 17 For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, they shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Again, I am now standing in that same never sinned righteousness that Jesus had? Yes. Yes, you are. How is that possible? I don't know. I can't describe how that's possible, but that's how it happened, and it's true. Doesn't that blow your mind? You ever wonder where that phrase came from? If you grew up in the 60s and 70s, you know where it came from. That phrase, blow your mind away, is a a rootser in the hippie movement of the 1960s. It describes the effects of a, a drug like LSD, where you're kind of out of your mind, but it later came to be used in common vernacular for any time someone amazes or overwhelms you with a wonderful surprise. 
whoa, you got that for me? That, wow, blown away. That's awesome. Thank you. And I would say that you and me having this kind of righteousness is a wonderful, pleasant, and overwhelming, and of course, incomprehensible surprise. It's awesome. But like that word awesome doesn't even sound good enough to describe it. In fact, apparently words aren't just inadequate for us to comprehend such a gift because 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12 tells us that the angels study us to better understand God's great salvation because their minds are blown away too. And they can't experience it personally. So they can't even begin to comprehend it through personal reception of it. So it says they study us. They look at you and me and they're like, how? Like, how? And they can better grasp how great their God is by looking at us and what He's done for us. While we can't fully understand our great salvation because it's beyond words, the result of God's indescribable gift, the idea that when the Father looks at you and me, if you're in Christ, the idea that He sees the righteousness of Christ, the full righteousness of Christ, is a very good reason to be thankful, don't you say? So, as the team comes up to close us out in song, if you're a believer this morning, then be thankful. You have everything to be thankful for. And rejoice. Rejoice in His great love for you that sent Him to our world. Rejoice in His great sacrifice on your behalf. And rejoice for the great salvation His gift of Jesus accomplished for you. And then lastly, worship Him. And not just during Christmas worship Him. you got a whole new year coming up. You can make a fresh start if you want. Make it your goal to be a thankful person, a joyful person, and someone who worships the Lord. Amen? Now, if you've not received Christ, or you haven't been walking with Him, well then, you can change that. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the famous verse, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. His indescribable gift is available to you as well. It's available to all of us if we will repent and put our trust in Christ, if we will receive Christ. To as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to be called the sons of God. Let's all stand. Lord, we thank You right now for Your gift beyond words. We say thank You for the love, the motive that, that brought it into being, the, the method, the incarnation and the cross Lord, you and your son together deciding to do that for us. And then, of course, for the results, Lord, the, this great salvation that we can barely wrap our minds around. Thank you for seating us in heavenly places in Christ. Thank you for seeing us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, someday we want to walk worthy of that. We want to wear those robes of white, which are the righteous acts of the saints. So, Lord, we give our lives to you now. We say thank you, and we choose to rejoice and to worship you, not just for Christmas, but for all of our days. And then we, every eye closed and every head bowed. If you're here this morning and either don't know the Lord or you've never received Christ or you've not been walking with Him and you want to make that decision, I want to turn around, I want to repent. If that's you right now receiving Christ, just lift your hand because I'd like to pray with you as you're making that decision. If you're receiving Christ this morning, just lift your hand high because I'd like to pray with you as you're making that decision. 
Anyone this morning before we close? Well, Lord, we thank you so much for this gift again, and we sing to you now with joy in our hearts, worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.